Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me again today as we consider the signs of the times. We are living in a powerful age, an age in which cultural forces are in conflict, religious values are waning, and there are tremendous upheavals between and within nations on a global scale. Yet God's people are called to witness to the truth as it is in Jesus, no matter what their circumstances, and he gives them grace to do so. You're called by God to reveal his glory, his character in this modern and degenerate age. The purity of the lives of Christ's followers and those of the secular world will be seen in stark contrast. May God give us grace to live our lives of faith in our times. Friends, thank you for your support for Keep the Faith Ministry. We greatly need and appreciate it. Our work has expanded so much, and we see God's hand in so many ways that we stand in awe. But you are important to making a success of God's work at Keep the Faith Ministry. Your gifts and prayers mean that we can continue to share our end-time message with thousands. If you would like to receive our email KTF Insider Report, let me remind you to be sure we have your email address. You won't want to miss the heartwarming stories of how God is changing lives through the work of Keep the Faith, which your gifts help to support. Please continue also to pray for our work at Highwood Health Retreat in Victoria, Australia. It is not too late to plan to be part of our volunteer group that will renovate our kitchen and help us install private bathrooms in five of our guest rooms this coming December, January, and February. I am praying that more skilled workers will join us as well as unskilled workers. We had a wonderful time last year as we worked to renovate the therapy department. We need your help, especially if you have building skills. When this renovation project is completed, our guests will have a simple yet elegant place to come for healing of body and soul. If you can spare a few weeks or a few months even to be with us, please contact me. This is a wonderful way to come up to the help of the Lord during your holiday time. Sunday is being promoted in many parts of the world as a day of rest. It is a day that is being pushed as a substitute for God's holy seventh-day Sabbath. Our study today will bring us face-to-face with this movement and will help us understand it more deeply. The fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments requires that man rest and worship on the seventh day of the week, but it is being substituted by another in conflict with the law of God. Before we begin our study today, let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your love and for the Bible that reveals your love. We can see that we are near the end of time and that soon there will be a series of events that will lead to a Sunday law of both national and global. This has clearly been been predicted in Scripture. In this age when so many of your people think that the Bible is not accurate or is not relevant, we see the certainty of the predictions of your prophets. We pray that we will learn to rely fully on God and faithfully trust your holy word 
and prepare our lives for the coming test of our loyalty to Jesus Christ and faith in his power to transform our lives. Send your Holy Spirit today as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 12, verse 11. Notice what is predicted here. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. These powerful words describe the people of God. These are the ones who have been saved by grace and have given their lives completely over to Jesus Christ. They would rather die than offend him. They reveal by their lives that they love Jesus supremely and are prepared to follow his Ten Commandments no matter what the consequences or cost may be. They love the Lord with all their hearts and with all their souls and with all their minds and with all their strength, Mark 12.30. These faithful men and women do not reason with intellectual philosophy and explain away the plain teachings of Scripture. They do not excuse themselves by vain imaginations. They live by the Ten Commandments, and because of that, they are the true followers of Jesus. In the last days, they will be tested. Satan is developing a global coalition to lead the world in opposition to God's law. There are many that say the law was nailed to the cross and that because of the blood of Jesus, we don't have to keep the law anymore. They really mean the fourth commandment because most Christians would not argue that you can steal or commit adultery or covet your neighbor's possessions. Most of them do not believe or teach that you can swear and take the name of the Lord in vain. The real aim of this argument is the fourth commandment. They do not want to keep the instructions of Jehovah, so they make excuses, all manner of them, to avoid their duty to live by the principles of God's express will. The end-time coalition is described in Scripture in a very succinct way. Listen to it from Revelation 13, verse 12. Speaking of the second beast, or the United States of America, the scripture says, And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. That first beast is the religious and political power based in Rome. There is no other entity on the planet that matches the description than the Church of Rome and the Vatican State. It's clear from the rest of the chapter also that worship is at the center of the geopolitical and religious struggle in the last days. Listen to verse 4. And they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? Verse 4 tells us that in those days all the people on the earth will worship the dragon, or Satan, and that Satan will give power to the church of Rome. The verse says that they worship the beast also. In other words, a very unusual power is arising to take this position, and it is right in front of us. It works by stealth, covering its aims and global purposes under the guise of religious piety. It's also plainly evident that a coalition of earthly powers is getting ready to enforce this false worship. In fact, in verse 15, we're told that the second beast, the United States, does something that today seems perhaps unthinkable. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Notice that the mark of the beast is placed on small and great. 
In other words, this includes the common people and their political leaders. The mark of the beast is placed in their right hands or in their foreheads. In other words, there are some who will go along with the world religious order even though they don't think it is right. And there are others who will agree with it and will act out their convictions. Either way, they get the mark of the beast. I'm amazed that so many of God's people are so into politics. Do they not know that the very political leaders they vote for and support when pressed beyond measure, will enact the very laws that will remove the freedoms from God's true people to worship Him according to His law. Great people, or powerful people, as they are referred to in Scripture, are people with influence, people with stature and political sway. But these people are the last ones you should trust. They cannot solve your spiritual problems. They cannot and will not help you in a crisis where your faith must run counter to their plans. And their plan, we are told plainly in these verses, is to compel the worship of the beast and the dragon. Who is the dragon? Well, it's Satan, who has always wanted your worship. He's wanted it from the day you were born. He has wanted it from the day he was thrown out of heaven. Your worship is at the center of the end-time crisis. Notice also that the verse includes both rich and poor that receive the mark of the beast. Wealthy people are very vulnerable because they have to keep the wealth coming. That means that they have to be involved with parties that often cause them to compromise their faith principles, if they have any. The really wealthy people of the world are in league with politicians, government bureaucrats, and international elites who are controlled by forces they may or may not understand. And in order to keep the wealth coming their way, they have to stay close to Rome. Chapter 18 of Revelation tells us that the wealthy merchants of the world are in league with Rome. Listen to it from verse 3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So there's a connection between the wealthy and merchants of the earth with Rome. The coalition, you see, is developing against you if you are faithful to Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. It is a secular and religious coalition. It is a political and religious coalition. They will work together to bring about the final crisis and test for God's true people. They don't even realize it. Notice who is involved in the coalition. The Roman Catholic global system is at the bottom of it. That includes her political and economic influence on the nations of the world. Is it any wonder that the popes continue to talk about the economy? They're working to bring the global economy under the control of Rome. They know that the economy is the basis of political power. Without money, politics cannot happen. So they know that they must control the economy if they're ever going to gain control of the political and religious order. The political leaders, or the kings of the earth, are involved with Rome too. They are often visiting the Pope when in Europe. One after the other, one after the other, they go to Rome and have an audience with the man who is really the head of the new world order, or at least is waiting in the wings for it to mature. This interaction between the kings of the earth and the papacy, the Bible calls fornication. And they've been committing spiritual fornication with Rome for a long, long time. They have consulted her. They have linked up with her. And they work carefully, steadily, and stealthily to achieve her goals. 
And why do they all work together? Certainly they're not all seeking to have everyone worship Satan and the Roman Catholic system. The great corporations of the earth are not that concerned about whether or not you worship or go to church or not. They don't care one bit, mostly. However, they still cooperate with Rome because Rome gives them economic advantages that they need, and they in turn cooperate with the papacy to let her have her way. In exchange for cooperation, Rome gives these merchants and political leaders advantages that they could not buy on the open market. The day of rest and worship for Rome is Sunday. The popes have been pushing global Sunday laws to ultimately achieve that worship. Right now, they're not pushing Sunday worship laws. They're pushing Sunday closing laws and Sunday rest laws in order to lay the foundation for Sunday worship laws that will come later. Perhaps I should explain that there are four levels of Sunday laws. First, there's Sunday closing laws that involve the shops and businesses in retail and industry. These are the most basic Sunday laws, and they lay the foundation for higher levels of Sunday laws. In some parts of the world, there are no laws against Sunday opening of shops and industries. In other places, there are laws in place requiring them to be closed for the morning, but they can open Sunday afternoon. Still other places require that shops be closed all day. And in some places, there are laws on the books that are not really enforced. They're called Sunday blue laws. The second level is Sunday rest laws. This is referring to laws that require more than just the closing of shops and other businesses on Sunday. These laws require that most secular activities, such as mowing the lawn and doing the laundry, are not permitted on Sunday. God's law forbids this on the Sabbath, or the seventh day, but human laws forbid this on Sunday to comply with Rome's agenda. The third level is Sunday worship laws. Though currently I am not aware of any nation on earth that requires its citizens to actually attend worship services on Sunday, the history of the world is full of examples. Medieval Europe required Sunday attendance at worship services. Protestant England required Sunday worship observance. And colonial America, probably colonial Australia, and other colonies in Africa, Latin America, and Asia required Sunday attendance at church as well. The fourth level is anti-Sabbath laws or laws that forbid the worship of God on his holy Sabbath day. These also carry the most stringent penalties, including the eventual death penalty. But times have changed. First, Sunday laws were gradually less and less enforced, and eventually, especially in the 1980s and 1990s, were done away with altogether in many countries as secularism became more and more entrenched in their societies. But now there is a resurgence of concern about Sunday. In recent times, there have been several little steps that support Sunday closing laws. For instance, a French court in July of 2014 has fined IKEA's French branch 120,000 euros, which it has to pay to aid employees, for not following the French Sunday closing laws. The cost, however, could become 30 million euros. French laws were liberalized to allow furniture stores to be open on Sunday since 2008, but IKEA had been operating open on Sundays since 2003. The judge awarded the plaintiffs 3,500 to 34,000 euros each, depending on the number of Sundays they had to work before the law was changed. There were other employees that were working on Sundays up to 2007, and some of them have also accused IKEA of breaking the law. They, too, could receive compensation.
IKEA maintains that the employees only had to work on a voluntary basis, and they were paid an additional 125% for their work. Meanwhile, in Israel, Justice Minister Tzipi Livni has announced on June 30, 2014, that she will support legislation to institute a two-day weekend in Israel, including Sunday. This is the right move, Livni said in her remarks at the opening of a lobby for religion and state event. And I know all the questions and arguments against it, but the moment we set a goal, we will be able to find solutions to all the problems that arise. Israel already has a two-day weekend, which includes Friday and Saturday, so observant Jews and Muslims can keep their religious days of rest. Muslims worship on Friday, and Jews use Friday to prepare for the Sabbath. The Knesset has been talking about making Sunday part of the weekend for a number of years, but in 2011, one of the Knesset members, Sylvan Shalom, began a campaign to include Sunday in the official weekend. The aim is to synchronize Israel's work week with most of the rest of the world. Shalom has said that embracing globalization is good for Israel both socially and economically. 75% of the world has a Saturday-Sunday weekend, he said. We must be part of the globalization. As of today, we only work with the world four days of the week instead of five. The status quo does not allow the capital import and export markets to operate in synchronization with the rest of the world. More recently, the Knesset reached an agreement in which one Sunday per month will be set aside as a rest day in a gradual transition toward every Sunday being a rest day. One argument in favor of Sunday rest even suggested that a Sunday off would increase Jewish observance on the Sabbath. Right now, a lot of Jews do their shopping on the Sabbath because it is the only day they have to do it. It's interesting that part of the reason for advocating Sunday rest in Israel is globalization. Globalization is about centralization of political and economic power in the hands of fewer people. It involves supranational governments over many nations and involves a religious component as well. Rome is pushing Sunday as a day of rest through globalization. Listen to what Revelation 13.8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Now that's referring to global worship, and it happens that it will be forcefully imposed by sanctions and penalties, including the death penalty, eventually. Verse 15 tells us that those who refuse to worship in the new world order way will be killed. Also, there will be economic sanctions against them as well, so that they cannot buy or sell. You'll find that in verse 16 and 17. There is no religious and political entity on earth that can be the rallying point for global worship other than the Roman Catholic Church. Muslims have a state religion, but they do not have a hierarchical system of organization that has a global political reach. Besides, Muslims can't agree among themselves and are continually at war with each other. So there's no hope of an Islamic global religion. No Protestant church, no Hindu state, no Buddhist government has anything like the global reach and influence of the Roman Catholic Church. Since it's both a church and a state, and has a hierarchical authority along with the political and international stature, it is the only global entity that can rally the world around its Sunday worship. And with the Jesuit Pope, it now has enormous popularity once again. 
Not only political leaders visit the Vatican on a regular basis, but religious leaders continually make their way to Rome to visit the Pope as well. Recently, Joel Osteen, a mega-church leader in Texas, Kenneth Copeland, another Texas pastor and a charismatic leader, James Robeson, a famous evangelical pastor, and other religious leaders from the United States met with Pope Francis in an effort to forge a unity between them. Pope Francis is also doing all he can to warmly welcome evangelicals and charismatics into the bosom of Rome. For instance, he recently visited a Pentecostal church in Caserta, Italy on July 28 to offer them a warm and reconciling hand. He spoke a few words to about 350 Pentecostal faithful and apologized for the Catholic persecution of Pentecostals during Italy's fascist regime. He also emphasized unity and brotherhood. Someone will be surprised. The Pope went to visit evangelicals, he said, but he went to see his brothers. The ecumenical movement has nearly reached its maturity. It is the ecumenical movement that has made it possible for Sunday to be pushed more strongly both now and especially in the future. As the churches rally around the friendliness of Rome, they resonate with the papal declarations concerning Sunday closing laws, Sunday rest laws, and other religious pronouncements. Let us think for a minute about a previous attempt at globalization. Babylon in the days of Daniel was a prophetic type of the spiritual Babylon that will arise in the last days. Nebuchadnezzar tried to bring about globalization of religion as well as the political order, the economy, education, language, etc., and God let him do it, no doubt, so that we could see the destination to which globalization is headed. There can never be globalized religious laws unless there is a globalized political order, a globalized economic order, globalized education, language, and other matters. We are nearing that time, my friends. Globalization is taking on huge proportions, and its final end will be religious laws. So now there is an approaching ecumenical maturity between the churches at the same time as globalization is reaching deeper and deeper into the geopolitical arena. These two issues are preparing political and religious leaders and their nations and churches to receive Sunday as a unifying power among them. Sunday is the basis of their unity. And for a Sabbath keeper to have unity with Rome, he has to give up the Seventh-day Sabbath. This is very hard to do for those who have a deep loyalty to God's law. But Sunday keepers have no such barrier. They, like Rome, do not keep God's holy law, and consequently they are vulnerable to Rome's advances. Rome is angling to have Sunday become the day of rest and worship for the whole world. Rome wants to rule the world. That's what it says in Revelation 18, verse 7. When Rome is punished, the Bible says, it will be because she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. And each passing day she gains more credibility and power over the nations of the world. Yes, the priestly sex scandals set them back a bit. But with a charismatic pope, Rome's popularity is soaring again. And now modern Israel, a Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping nation, perhaps the only one on the planet, is following in the globalization track and is laying the foundation for the nation to accept the mark of the beast by creating Sunday rest laws that will one day likely mature into Sunday worship laws. 
I think it's rather amazing that Jews and Muslims could join together with Rome in establishing Sunday as a day of rest. Yet this is what is being proposed, at least in Israel. Perhaps they will rally around papal pleas for peace in the Middle East. Perhaps they will see the Pope as the great peace broker. Daniel 8.25 suggests this by saying, And by peace he shall destroy many. This means that through peace initiatives, the Pope will deceive many and lead them to reject God's law. India, a Hindu country, has also been pushing Sunday closing laws. Andhra Pradesh has strict Sunday closure laws for all shops, both large and small. In 2013, the Labor Department of the government decided to enforce Sunday closing laws in Hyderabad, where there are about a thousand large shops, by penalizing shops that open on Sundays. Shopping malls in Andhra Pradesh have government per- permission to remain open 365 days per year, but they must meet 17 criteria, and most of them do not meet the conditions. Argentina is also working on Sunday closing laws. The board of the Center for Trade and Industry, CCI, has backed a bill for the closure of shops on Sundays in order to guarantee rest for workers. We're extremely pleased to promote the closure of shops on Sunday, a move that will be the basis to recover the values of harmony, solidarity, and respect among the people, said the president of CCI, Andronicus Suarez. It is important to recover Sunday rest, to humanize working relationships, revitalize family relationships, encourage spiritual life, and give back to society the ability to enjoy their free time. So we welcome the provincial legislature concerning this point, he added. And to add religious strength to the Sunday closing movement, the executive committee of CCI also stressed that Pope Francis himself has encouraged Sunday closing laws by saying, I ask God to enlighten their Christian life and in their efforts to highlight the value of the worthy celebration of the Lord in all its dimensions. In Poland, the Catholic Church is very active in promoting Sunday rest. In October of 2013, a conference was held with members of Parliament and members and supporters of the Light Life Movement, Catholic Action, and the Association of Catholic Families to talk about Sunday rest. They are lobbying for laws in Parliament for the legal protection of Sunday as a day of rest because, they say, it is necessary for the healthy functioning of families. Henry Kowalczyk, secretary of the group, said that recent studies showed that Sunday closures would not increase unemployment or decrease economic development. Hannah Crochet, president of the National Institute of Catholic Action, emphasized that the free Sunday is important for believers because the third commandment obliges us to celebrate Sunday, she said. Crochet also said that many people are not believers and for them the Decalogue is not important. It's therefore important to also look at the social reasons for Sunday rest. In other words, they're looking for secular reasons to promote Sunday rest among secular people who don't want Rome's religion crammed down their throats. Proponents of Sunday closing argue that it won't do to have one day off in seven with family members taking different days off. Family time has to be synchronized to be at the same time for benefit to happen, they say. Therefore, Sunday is the best day for rest since it is the best day to bring families together. They are confident that a legal free Sunday will succeed. 
We want to recover Sunday because it is the right of every human being, regardless of beliefs, said Miloslav Shmilovitz, a spokesman for the Light Life Movement. Europe is perhaps the most advanced in regard to promoting Sunday observance. That stands to reason, since Europe is in the Vatican's backyard. The papacy can never become queen of the world unless she first gets Europe under her wing again. She has to be careful and work very quietly and stealthily in order to recover her previous position. She also has to work very piously. But the papacy is very active in supporting Sunday legislation at the European Union level. The European Catholic Bishops' Conference, or COMIS, and the European Sunday Alliance, which, has, which was formed a few years ago, are working very hard to gather support for stricter Sunday closing and Sunday rest laws. Organizations in the European Sunday Alliance include many Catholic organizations and alliances. The European Sunday Alliance is largely made up of Catholic organizations. It also includes Protestant and formerly Protestant organizations as well as family organizations, trade unions, and other associations and organizations in most European countries. Organizations from all the nations of Europe and Scandinavia except Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, Kosovo, and Montenegro are represented. Each passing year, more organizations are added to the list of those promoting a work-free Sunday. In 2014, Comis and the European Sunday Alliance jointly sponsored a conference to encourage and plan strategies to promote Sunday laws in Europe. The conference was held in January at the European Union offices in Brussels. During the conference, they officially launched a pledge to support a work-free Sunday ahead of European parliamentary elections. The pledge was given to ambitious politicians who want a seat in the EU Parliament, seeking their commitment to promote a common weekly day of rest, namely Sunday. The pledge reads as follows. A work-free Sunday and decent working hours are of paramount importance for citizens and workers throughout Europe and are not necessarily in conflict with economic competitiveness. Especially in the present time of socio-economic crisis, the adoption of legislation extending working hours to late evenings, nights, bank holidays, and Sundays has direct consequences for the working conditions of employees and for small and medium-sized enterprises. Competitiveness needs innovation. Innovation needs creativity. And creativity needs recreation. In other words, rest and recreation are important for, for productivity and creativity, which underlines the need for Sunday laws. In signing the pledge, politicians, including current members of the EU Parliament, commit themselves, first, to ensure that all relevant EU legislation both respects and promotes the protection of a common weekly day of rest for EU citizens, which shall be in principle on a Sunday, in order to protect workers' health and promote a better balance between family and private life and work. And secondly, to promote EU legislation guaranteeing sustainable working time patterns. Sixty-five political candidates have already signed the pledge. As you can see, there are a number of key elements that are being promoted in defense of Sunday legislation. They include health and safety, family time, life balance, social cohesion, recreation, and creativity. They cite studies showing that with one day off per week, workers have better mental and physical health and they have less accidents while working, less illness, and less absenteeism. 
They show from studies that non-standard working hours, such as nights and weekends, desynchronizes social rhythms and upsets the social life of the individual, leading to increased stress and illness. They even say that Sunday, as a weekly rest day, contributes more than any other day of the week to the health and safety of workers. And they now have studies showing that mental health involves the ability to grow spiritually as well as have a balanced social life. The European Trade Confederation, which is an organization for the various trade unions, is pushing for Sunday rest law in Europe. The trade unions are in support of Sunday rest and will help Rome and other churches push for Sunday legislation. So listen to this statement from Manuscript Releases, Volume 4, page 88. Satan will do that which will close the southern field, that's in America, against the truth, if the Lord does not interpose. And the trade unions will be one of the agencies that will bring upon this earth a time of trouble such as has not been since the world began. That's pretty serious, my friends. To see trade unions in alliances with the Sunday rest movement shows us that as they gain strength, trade unions will eventually have the power to make it very difficult for God's people who keep all of his commandments. In fact, there's another statement that should interest us. It's also from Manuscript Releases, Volume 4, page 23. The trade unions will be the cause of the most terrible violence that has ever been seen among human beings. Right now, trade unions don't have that kind of power, but we're told that eventually they will. Vatican Radio published an interview with Leila Castaldo, head of the syndicate trade Uni Europa, which is a trade union association. Castaldo said a number of important things. We all have the same goal, to defend the common Sunday as a day of rest. When a worker is forced to work on Sundays, he can also participate less in social life. If there is not a common day of rest, there is no longer synchronization between working life and private life. The Catholic bishops and the European Sunday Alliance also say that Sunday rest promotes family time because schools are closed on Sundays. Also, there is already EU legislation limiting youth working times on Sunday. And also, Sunday is already generally recognized as a day of rest. Sunday work, along with other irregular working times, makes it difficult, if not impossible, for workers to enjoy a proper family life and to reconcile work with duties toward children and other dependents. Family life, my friends, is central to the Roman Catholic argument for Sunday laws. Both secular and religious people can appreciate the value of family time. Rome is capitalizing on the most basic unit of society to use it as a wedge to implement Sunday rest laws. Therefore, urging families to spend time together is a natural fit with work-free Sundays, because in the minds of most people, Sunday is the only day off from work or school. And now, in 2015, Rome is planning its largest world meeting of families for September in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It is anticipated that Pope Francis will attend, though not yet confirmed by the Vatican. It will emphasize family life, but also undergird the appeal of Sunday rest. A third strong argument in favor of a work-free Sunday and Sunday rest legislation is social cohesion. They argue that in the fragmenting society, Sunday is the reference point around which the state and society organize their time. 
A common weekly rest day creates a framework for the collective rhythm of society. Only a well-protected common work-free day per week enables citizens to enjoy full participation in cultural, sports, and religious life, to seek cultural enrichment and spiritual well-being, they say. Without Sunday, all these forms of social interaction and pastime would be endangered. Notice that those pushing Sunday also aim to garner support from those who love sports. Many people are passionate about sports. They live for sports, they think sports, they talk sports, and buy all sorts of sports paraphernalia. Rome is aiming to draw this passion in support of Sunday rest, because this is the time of sports, which is often called recreation. Rome sees no conflict with Sunday rest and sports. Another thing that is being said in defense of Sunday rest is that unless you support Sunday rest, you cannot be a full participant in the social life of the nation. That's an exclusionary statement. In other words, if you don't go along with Sunday rest, you will eventually be excluded from participation in society. And that's exactly what the Bible teaches. First, those who do not worship according to the New World Order, religious laws, will be unable to buy or sell. And eventually, they'll face the ultimate exclusion from society with the death penalty. Here it is from Revelation 13, verses 15 to 17. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Lastly, notice the ever-present religious element that really undergirds the Sunday rest movement. Everyone knows that Rome has its worship on Sunday, so religious people are drawn to Sunday rest as well. There's something for everyone, almost, in the arguments for Sunday rest laws, something to draw most of society in support of them. Listen to this very important statement from Great Controversy, page 592. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. The lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying the love of justice and regard for truth, and even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In the soon coming conflict, we shall see exemplified the prophet's words, The dragon was wroth with a woman, and went to make war with a remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 12.17 So, there is no doubt where this is headed. Notice that the dignitaries of the church will unite with dignitaries of the state. In other words, the Pope, bishops, pastors, and other religious leaders will work with state leaders and legislative bodies to enact laws that satisfy their demands for a work-free Sunday and Sunday worship laws. Here's another interesting and important statement from the Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 450 and 451. The same masterful mind that plotted against the faithful in ages past is still seeking to rid the earth of those who fear God and obey His law. 
Satan will excite indignation against the humble minority who conscientiously refuse to accept popular customs and traditions. What is indignation? Well, that's anger. The few who oppose the New World Order religion will eventually have the wrath of the majority of people on the planet against them because they keep God's law. Only a few people will really grasp the true importance of the law of God. And it's going to get nasty, my friends. Right now it seems relatively harmless, but underneath it all is an agenda to compel the conscience. I'll read on. Men in position and reputation will join with the lawless and the vile to take counsel against the people of God. Wealth, genius, education will combine to cover them with contempt. Persecuting rulers, ministers, and church members will conspire against them with voice, pen, by boasts and threats and ridicule. They will seek to overthrow their faith. By false representations and angry appeals, they will stir up the passions of the people. Have you ever seen irrational and emotional arguments to demonize a perceived enemy? I have many times. Those who wish to assassinate the reputation of good people will do so by making wild claims about what they believe or practice. And it's happened many times in history, and it still happens today. Perhaps you've seen it around you. Let me read on. Not having a thus saith the scriptures to bring against the advocates of the Bible Sabbath, they will resort to oppressive enactments to supply the lack. To secure popularity and patronage, legislators will yield to the demand for a Sunday law. Those who fear God cannot accept an institution that violates a precept of the Decalogue. On this battlefield comes the last great conflict of the controversy between truth and error, and we are not left in doubt as to the issue. Now, as in the days of Mordecai, the Lord will vindicate his truth and his people. Often Bible truth concerning the Sabbath is not understood. Never in Scripture do we find evidence to support keeping Sunday holy. Yet there are many who use, or rather misuse, all manner of Scripture to justify their position. It is impossible to convince them of the truth of God's word that the seventh day is his day of rest and worship. That's the way it will be at the end of time, when the issues are clearly set before the people. Most will reject the plain utterances of holy writ. They'll turn their backs on the Most High and serve Babylon. They will discard the Sabbath of the Lord and replace it with a false Sabbath, namely Sunday. Perhaps the most important thing about the arguments put forward to promote Sunday rest laws is that all of these arguments are the reason why God set aside the seventh-day Sabbath at creation in the first place. He understood the need for maintaining health, particularly after the fall of man. He knew that man would need family time. After all, he created the family as the most precious set of human relationships. And lastly, he was fully aware that there must be a healthy and cohesive social life. The seventh-day Sabbath was meant to enhance all these things. Now even the arguments for the Sabbath are being transferred to Sunday. I might add that transferring all the arguments on behalf of the seventh-day Sabbath to Sunday does not change their validity with regard to the Sabbath. The seventh-day Sabbath is still full of all the benefits that are now applied to Sunday. What an affront to the Creator, though! Do you realize what advocates of Sunday are doing? They are in essence saying, we don't need God's word, we don't need his law, we will do what we want. That is the utmost form of rebellion. 
Let me add also that a church that turns its back on God and on its, His law is not His church at all. By keeping Sunday as a day of rest and worship, Rome is not following the scripture but tradition. She prostitutes the true faith. Those churches that follow in her footsteps are also joining in her rebellion to God. Tradition is what gives Rome the flexibility to act in the political realm. The fact that Sunday observance comes directly from the tradition of paganism, which also mixed the religious cult with the state, provides Rome with the basis on which to do the same. The papacy has done this mixing of church and state throughout its entire 2,000-year history, often using the state to persecute those she demonized as heretics. Sunday observance essentially takes worship out of the realm of the spiritual and places it in the realm of the political, because it's politically expedient. Sunday is a political tool in the hands of Rome to gain power over the nations. Here's how she does it. Rome is the largest church on earth because she offers salvation not from sin, but in sin. That is very appealing to a billion people, at least. The formerly Protestant churches are willing to teach that too these days, only in a different way. They teach that you can't overcome your sins, so all you need is Christ's forgiveness. Rome prescribes penance, but the evangelicals just say you need Christ's forgiveness. You don't need to go on pilgrimages. You don't need to say the rosary. You don't need to do some other penance. That's really the only difference. Now, with all the unity developing between Rome and the evangelical churches, who knows what will happen to their doctrines? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Because of the support Rome has with the masses of people and also the churches that rally around Sunday worship with her, Rome has political power with the earthly nations. It is the power of the people that she uses to achieve her ends with the leaders of these nations. She knows that if she re resorts to the Seventh-day Sabbath of the Bible, she would lose her standing and power with the nations of the world because to follow the Ten Commandments requires humility. She would not be able to manipulate the kings of the earth anymore. She would not be able to exalt her pride and arrogance because she would have to humbly follow the Bible. She would lose everything she stands for. This is important to understand because there is coming a time when Rome will be exposed for what she's done. She will have to face punishment both from the people of the earth, who will burn her with fire, Revelation 17:16, and from the God of heaven. Here is what she will face from the God of heaven. Revelation 18, verses 4 through 8. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she has filled, filled to her double." How much she hath glorified herself, and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death, mourning, and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. The popes have consistently called for Sunday rest and worship. John Paul II, in his apostolic letter, Dies Domini, started a modern trend which Benedict XVI and Francis have followed, to work for the restoration of Sunday observance just at the time when, like never before, end-time prophecies are being fulfilled. John Paul II 
pulled from every possible angle to argue in favor of Sunday rest. He misused scripture, he misrepresented the church fathers, he distorted and falsified history, he drew from Roman Catholic arguments as well as Protestant ones, he did everything he could to convincingly argue in favor of Sunday as the Lord's day of rest. Anyone who doesn't know the Bible would certainly be taken in by this and think that he is right. Only those who know what the scripture says would see through his deceptive arguments. He even advocated legislation that would support Sunday rest and worship by the nations of the world. Benedict XVI also advocated Sunday rest. For example, at a Eucharistic Congress in May of 2005 in Bari, Italy, he clearly promoted Sunday worship. The theme of the Congress was, Without Sunday, we cannot live. And he urged the keeping of Sunday in celebration of the risen Lord. Pope Benedict XVI also advocated Sunday rest in his book on the life of Christ. I quote, If one considers the importance that Saturday has in the Old Testament tradition, based on the account of the creation and on the Decalogue, he wrote, it is evident that only an event of overwhelming force could cause giving up Saturday and replacing it by the first day of the week. What event could be of such overwhelming force that would require the giving up of the Sabbath of creation and the Sabbath of the Decalogue? Pope Benedict XVI gave the answer. For me, the celebration of the Lord's Day, which has distinguished the Christian community from the beginning, is one of the strongest proofs that something extraordinary happened on that day, the discovery of the empty sepulcher and the encounter with the risen Lord. There is nothing that is so compelling about the resurrection that gives a church the authority to change God's law. But that is what the Catholic Church has done, and they use the excuse of the resurrection of Christ to justify the sin. The former Pope admitted that Saturday is the Sabbath of the Bible. He also says that man gave up the true historical and divinely required Bible Sabbath merely because Jesus arose from the tomb on that day. He cites no scripture, suggesting that Jesus or the apostles changed the Sabbath, though that is often what is claimed. He can't cite any scripture because there isn't any. The veneration of the resurrection of Christ creates an aura around Easter Sunday and each weekly Sunday and falsely elevates its importance in the people's minds. Certainly the resurrection is important, for the Lord would not have ascended to heaven to minister before the Father on our behalf if the resurrection had not occurred. However, the resurrection is far from being as important as Christ's death on the cross. The resurrection is only the excuse used to promote and establish Sunday rest and worship as a political, legal, and moral obligation. And now Pope Francis is also promoting Sunday observance. In a new book called Pope Francis, His Life in His Own Words, Francis advocates relaxation and rest. In response to the question, do we need to rediscover the meaning of leisure, the Pope replied, together with a culture of work, there must be a culture of leisure and gratification. To put it another way, people who work must take the time to relax, to be with their families, to enjoy themselves, read, listen to music, play a sport. But this is being destroyed, in large part, by the elimination of the Sabbath rest day. More and more people work on Sundays as a consequence of the competitiveness imposed by a consumer society. In each case, he concludes, work ends up dehumanizing people. 
Notice that the Pope calls Sunday the Sabbath. And while this is common, it is also a misrepresentation. In his own mother tongue, Spanish, Saturday is Sabado, which means Sabbath. He knows what day is the Sabbath, but he deliberately chooses to apply it to Sunday. The Pope also suggests that people who don't take time for their family are living with fraud, since Catholic social teaching promotes the concept that workers deserve dignity and that involves rest, the Pope is saying that without family time, you cannot be a true and authentic Christian. The Church then promotes Sunday as the time for family. All of that would be true of the Sabbath as well, wouldn't it? The Bible promotes Sabbath as the family time. But to the Popes, and in particular Pope Francis, Sunday is important as a substitute for the Sabbath. And he is referring to the whole day, not just the worship of Mass. John Paul II, in his apostolic letter, Dies Domini, wrote that even in those countries which give legal sanction to the festive character of Sunday, changes in socioeconomic conditions have often led to profound modifications of social behavior, and hence the character of Sunday. During the bishops' conference in Rome on the movement called the New Evangelization in October of 2013, which focused on reawakening faith, one of the conclusions was, even though there is a tension between the Christian Sunday and the secular Sunday, Sunday needs to be recovered. In keeping, they wrote, with John Paul's Dies Domini. Friends, the seventh-day Sabbath of the Lord is under a lot of pressure, both from the secular world that has no interest in religion and from the religious world that wants to establish global worship. The purposes and advantages of keeping God's holy seventh-day Sabbath are now being stolen from it and applied to Sunday. The alternative that the popes have promoted and established since the fourth century during the time of Constantine. But now, as we near the end of time, the Sabbath will become a special point of controversy. Listen to this from the book Great Controversy, page 615 and 616. As the Sabbath has become the special point of controversy throughout Christendom, and religious and secular authorities have combined to enforce the observance of the Sunday, the persistent refusal of a small minority to yield to the popular demand will make them objects of universal execration. It will be urged that the few who stand in opposition to an institution of the church and a law of the state ought not to be tolerated, that it is better for them to suffer than for whole nations to be thrown into confusion and lawlessness. The same argument many centuries ago was brought against Christ by the rulers of the people. It is expedient for us, said the wily Caiaphas, that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. John 11.50 This argument will appear conclusive, and a decree will finally be issued against those who hollow the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment, denouncing them as deserving the severest punishment and giving the people liberty after a certain time to put them to death. Romanism in the old world and apostate Protestantism in the new will pursue a similar course toward those who honor all the divine precepts. Today the whole world is being cultivated and prepared to accept alternatives to the seventh-day Sabbath. Ultimately, those who stand with Christ will face enormous pressure, but if they are faithful, they will have a home in heaven. Where will you stand, my friend? Will you join the majority? Or will you be one of the faithful who stand by the law of God? 
Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, through Jesus, we are indeed in need of your Holy Spirit to stand against the temptations and the pressures of the carnal world. We are convinced that time is short, and all that is needed is a major global crisis, an epidemic, a world war, an economic collapse, or some other thing that will throw the world into perplexity and panic. This, in turn, will trigger a global push for laws that will enforce Sunday observance. Sunday worship on a global scale is the agenda of the largest church on the planet. And we cannot stand faithful to God's law if we do not have Christ in our hearts. Today we pray that you will implant your Holy Spirit in our hearts that we may understand our times and what it will take to survive the coming cataclysmic spiritual events. Purify us. Let us live in the light of your love and honor you by keeping all of your commandments through the power of Jesus Christ, including faithful observance of the seventh-day Sabbath. In Jesus' precious and holy name I pray. Amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you've just heard is called I Gave My Life for Thee, played by Henry Higgins. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Day by Day. This beautiful CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll gladly send them. Please mention the Day by Day CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD to help cover the extra postage. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Pope Francis, Global Economy Near Collapse. Pope Francis thinks the global economy is at risk and can't last much longer. He attacked the cult of money worship by saying that an economy built on money worship and war and scarred by yawning inequality and youth unemployment cannot survive. His remarks were reported in La Vanguardia, a Barcelona newspaper. We discard a whole generation to maintain an economic system that no longer endures, the 77-year-old pontiff told the paper. A system that to survive has to make war, as the big empires have always done, he said. But since we cannot wage the Third World War, we make regional wars. And what does that mean? That we make and sell arms, and with that the balance sheets of the idolatrous economies, the big world economies, that sacrifice man at the feet of the idol of money, are obviously cleaned up. Our global economic system can't take any more. The Pope was concerned about youth unemployment and his usual inequality. The problem with the global economy, he said, is that it puts the god of money at the center rather than humanity. Recent popes have been ardent advocates of changing the global economic system, so Pope Francis' remarks are no surprise. Globalization includes the economic changes the Pope is advocating. Globalization puts control of the world in just a few hands, making it easier for the papacy to manipulate them. This will be very important when the papacy sits as queen upon the whole earth. She will use governments to fulfill her will. By speaking pointedly about the economy, the Pope is injecting himself and the papacy in the politics of the world as well as the economy. The papacy wants to dominate both spheres. I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Revelation 18, verse 7. Next. Peace in the Middle East. Not in my lifetime. Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, told an audience at the Aspen Security Forum that he saw no prospect of peace in the Middle East for decades to come. He said that if Israel fully eradicated Hamas something much worse would take its place. He said Israel should carefully calibrate its current offensive in Gaza to punish Hamas so as not to eliminate it, otherwise Gaza will fall under the sway of the extremist group ISIS that controls large sections of Syria and Iraq. Is there going to be peace in the Middle East? he asked. Not in my lifetime. 
After two weeks of fighting, more than 1,000 Palestinians and 46 Israelis have killed. By the time you hear this, it will certainly be more. Chances of a diplomatic solution seem increasingly remote. Meanwhile, the Syrian civil war poses a direct threat to the U.S. because a growing number of foreigners, including some 100 U.S. citizens, are joining the fight there, according to Matthew Olson, director of the National Counterterrorism Center. They carry U.S. passports, along with some 1,000 Europeans with European passports, which makes it easy for them to return to their homelands and plan potential attacks. Altogether, there are at least 12,000 foreigners fighting Bashir al-Assad's government in Syria. According to many U.S. defense leaders, ISIS is becoming a safe haven for training camps and terror planning similar to Afghanistan before 9-11. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. In the future there will be broken thrones and great distress of nations with perplexity. Satan will work with intense activity. The earth will be filled with the shrieks of suffering, expiring nations. There will be war, war. The places of the earth will be in confusion, as from its bowels pour forth its burning contents to destroy the inhabitants of the world, who in their wickedness resemble the inhabitants of the antediluvian world. That's Manuscript Releases, Volume 18, page 92. Next, Mosquito Brings Pestilence to the U.S. The Asian tiger mosquito has begun to invade the United States. It carries a virus that causes chikungunya fever, a disease which causes headaches, rashes, fevers, and worst of all, paralyzing joint pain. Though it is rarely fatal, there is no known cure for the disease. Up until last year, the disease was mostly found in Africa and Asia. Though there are yet no known cases that originated in the United States, the Asian tiger mosquito has now migrated as far north as New York and Chicago and could eventually carry the disease. It is also expanding its breeding season and adapting to colder temperatures. It has extended its egg-laying season and delayed hibernation. In contrast to other types of mosquitoes, the Asian tiger mosquito bites all day long. Of the 129 cases in the U.S. so far this year, all of them were contracted abroad. The pieces are falling into place for a historic epidemic on U.S. shores, a trio of Yale University professors wrote in a recent CNN column. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Matthew 24, 7. Next, Ebola. Worst is yet to come. The worst is yet to come, said Ken Isaacs about the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Doctors and other health workers battling the disease are being infected and the disease has moved into the big cities of West Africa. That means that it could spread to other parts of the world by air travel. The outbreak of Ebola has now killed more than 670 people in the countries of Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. More than 1,000 have been infected by the disease, which can kill up to 90% of its victims. It is spread by direct contact with body fluids and tissues of infected people or animals. An American doctor, Kent Brantley, 33, who works for the aid organization Samaritan's Purse, 
is under intensive medical treatment after being infected with Ebola. Another U.S. citizen, Nancy Wrightball, also has tested positive for Ebola, Samaritan's Purse said. She was working in Monrovia. Both are in stable condition, but not yet out of danger. Also, one of Liberia's highest-profile doctors, along with a Ugandan doctor working in the country, have died from the disease. Another doctor is being treated. In one recent week, out of 12 new cases, eight of them were health workers who can easily spread the disease to other patients. In Sierra Leone, the doctor leading the fight against the disease for Doctors Beyond Borders has contracted the disease as well. And three nurses working in the same treatment center have apparently died from the disease in spite of strict infection control measures. Ebola is likely to spread outside of West Africa. Recently, one man who was sick with the disease arrived on an international flight in Lagos, Nigeria, Africa's largest city with 21 million people. He later died. Ebola first resembles other illnesses, making it difficult to identify those with early onset before boarding a flight. If Ebola is not fought and contained in West Africa, it will be fought somewhere else, Isaac said. He also said that where it gets really scary is that the disease, which is previously seen only in very remote small villages in Africa, is now spreading to the big cities. Now the disease has been introduced into the big urban areas with millions of people, he said. In the big cities, people can get on an airplane and fly out. I think the worst is yet to come. I hope I'm wrong. And there shall be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places, Matthew 24, 7. Next, Germans considering military base in the Pacific region. In light of escalating tension in the maritime areas off the Chinese coast, German foreign policy experts are analyzing the diverse interests at stake and the possibilities for intervention. China is in dispute with Japan over the Daoyu Senaku Islands. The nearby maritime sea routes are the channel for approximately 80% of its energy imports. Britain, France, and the United States have capabilities to intervene should it become necessary because they have naval bases in the area. Berlin does not. Japan is not the only country in dispute with China for various small islands and in and around shipping routes in the East and South China Seas. Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia along the Straits of Malacca, an extremely important shipping lane to China, are in the crosshairs of what China calls the Malacca Problem. The Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam also have disputes with China over the Paracel and Spratly Islands they claim as their own. Berlin is considering what could happen if there would be war in East Asia over these islands or other issues. Great Britain, France, and the United States would be operational, but Germany would not. There is now discussion of Germany maintaining a naval base in the Indian Ocean to rectify this deficit. Germany has a long history of a presence in the Indian Ocean, especially in collaboration with the U.S. Navy to serve German core interests, which stretch all the way to East Asia. And while Berlin has yet to endorse such a plan in its foreign policies, the discussion indicates the direction the debate in Berlin's foreign policy establishment is headed, especially in light of the escalating struggle between China, its neighbors, and the West. 
As Germany resurrects her military machine, watch for Berlin to expand its military power and presence and involvement in international geopolitical conflicts on an increasingly global scale. And there shall be wars and rumors of wars, Matthew 24, 6. Next, Joe Osteen meets the Pope. A few days before Kenneth Copeland and other evangelical leaders met with Pope Francis, Joe Osteen, evangelical pastor of the 16,000-member Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, paid a visit to see the Pope. The meeting was in response to the Pope's invitation to evangelical leaders to discuss the question, Can we find common ground in order to advance the life and ministry of Jesus so more people can experience the joy of Christian faith? Though the meeting was unofficial, Osteen said it was a great honor to represent the pastors of America in the meeting with the pontiff. Osteen described the Pope as full of joy. Also in the short meeting was U.S. Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah, a Mormon, former U.S. Secretary of the Interior, and former Senator Dirk Kempthorne, a Methodist, Tim Timmons, a pastor and author from Newport Beach, California, Gail D. Beebe, president of Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, and ten others. Osteen is pastor of the fastest-growing megachurch in America and ministers to 52,000 people every week, and perhaps millions more through his books and TV ministry. It is not hard to imagine the joy the Pope would have over so many influential evangelical pastors and political leaders coming to Rome to meet him and work for unity. These are the people that have a lot of influence on their congregations and the American public at large. Osteen also attended Mass in St. Peter's Square with approximately 100,000 people the day before the meeting. Also during their visit in Rome, the Pope met with more than 50,000 Roman Catholic Charismatics in Olympic Stadium. I like the fact that this Pope is trying to make the church larger, not smaller, Osteen said. He's not pushing people out, but making the church more inclusive. That resonated with me. Francis Rooney, former U.S. Ambassador to the Vatican, said, I think the Pope in reaching out is broadening the concept of ecumenical dialogue, and he's reaching out to people who can touch other Christians. As usual, the Pope asked the group to pray for him and for peace in the Middle East. The International Foundation, the main organizer of the U.S. National Day of Prayer, arranged the multi-day visit to Rome to promote interfaith understanding and ecumenical prayer. Osteen also met with Cardinal Pietro Parolin, Vatican Secretary of State, and at dinner with another cardinal. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree, and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Revelation 17.17 17. For the nations to give their power and strength to the beast, Revelation 17.13, they need the support of religious leaders. The ecumenical movement is a powerful means of breaking down prejudice so that unity with Rome is possible. This will open the way for global leaders to give their kingdoms to the control of Rome. Also, it should be noted that the group was a mix of political and religious leaders. Uniting church and state is what the papacy is all about and is described in the Bible as fornication. See Revelation 17.2. When Protestant churches shall unite with the secular power to sustain a false religion, for opposing which their ancestors endured the fiercest persecution, 
then will the papal Sabbath be enforced by the combined authority of church and state. There will be a national apostasy which will end only in national ruin. Evangelism, page 235. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Revelation 13, verse 8. Unfortunately, my friends, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at www.ktfministry.org. It has been a great pleasure to spend this time with you, and I hope you've been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life, and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support, and until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in his loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.